Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello. In 1850, following the death of John C. Calhoun, senator from South Carolina, former Secretary of State, former Secretary of War, former Vice President, one of his great political enemies, Thomas Hart Benton, said to a spectator, he is not dead, sir. He is not dead. There may be no vitality in his body, but there is in his doctrines. John Kowal Calhoun was one of the most fundamentally important politicians of the 19th century and perhaps of any era in American history. He was not just a political theorist, but also had served in practically every office in federal government, from congressman to senator to vice president. With me to discuss him is Robert Elder, assistant professor of history at Baylor University in Waco, Texas, author of Calhoun, American Heretic, now available from Basic Books. Bob, thank you so much for being, once again, on Historically Thinking. Thanks for having me back, Al. So uh, I think last time we actually, we did the one and only sort of book club on uh, historically thinking. We need to do something like that again. And talking about uh, Ed Baptist book. Oh, um, yeah. Half has never, has never been told, mm-hmm. which is kind of, there's, well, well, we'll get to that because mm-hmm. there's, there's uh, this book is, it's partly in relation to that. Yep. I'll note that listeners last week heard Lori Glover talking about Eliza Lucas Pinckney. Um, you might be then forgiven for thinking this is South Carolina month or that I'm auditioning to replace, uh, you know, uh, Walter Edgar on Walter Edgar's journal. Uh, but this is just, this is just a sheer happenstance. Um, so you went to Clemson university. I did. Is that why you wrote this book? No. Well, I I suppose at some deep psychological level, maybe it is, (laughs) but in my conscious mind, no. Uh, I was not that uh, aware uh, of, of the history of Calhoun and Clemson when I went there. I, I was certainly aware of it, but I didn't care that much about it. Because um, Clemson is his, basically his plantation. Yeah, it is. His, uh, his son-in-law, uh, Thomas Green Clemson, gives the land to the state uh, uh, at his death, and it becomes Clemson University. So... The Calhouns come to America like the rest of the Scots Irish. They seem to have swarmed swarmed ashore in uh, Newcastle, Delaware, Philadelphia, and then headed into the Pennsylvania backcountry. Um, they um, actually they're Highlanders. Come to think of it, because I've been to Luss on Loch Lomond, where all the Calhouns are from, mm. and they all they all spell their name differently. But right. it's all the you know, it's Col- we you see this in this book. It's Colwyn, uh, Corwin. I think Colwyn. Col- uh, there's all these spelling barriers. Yeah, well, even once they get over to North America, yeah, there's a dizzying number of spellings. No, yeah, no, they can never spell it straight. So they, it, it's interesting. I'm thinking about uh, talking with Lori about the sort of luck of the draw of Eliza Pinckney being born in the very small white population in Antigua. Um, Calhoun's life would have been very different if they had just stopped in Pennsylvania or even in Virginia. Yeah. Yeah. It, I think, um, you know, they're part of this huge movement that first comes across the Atlantic in the mid 18th century and then just moves down that, uh, you know, the great wagon road uh, looking for land. And I think um, 
I think the key to understanding that is that that um, the Calhouns have this long history, family history, multi-generational history, going all the way back to Scotland, of kind of following the edges of the British Empire hmm. and, and finding the places where they could uh, get land uh, cheaply or free. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they just they just keep doing that. But uh, a lot of Calhouns did stop in Pennsylvania. Um, I, I found uh, there's burial records for Calhouns in a church, the Chestnut Level Church, uh, well into the 19th century. So hmm. parts of the family did stop in Pennsylvania. And, uh, oh, it's just fascinating to think what what a Calhoun, what a John Caldwell Calhoun would have been. Uh, in Pennsylvania. I mean, one of the things I try to draw out in the book is that even when they first get there in the 1730s, 1740s, there's already this argument about slavery emerging in Pennsylvania. And, um, and, and Calhoun's family, as far as we can tell, don't have a lot of sympathy for the, for the, you know, uh, proto-abolitionist arguments being made by the Quakers and, and things like that. Uh, as far as Virginia, there's this great, there's this great letter on one of his trips home uh, when he is, you know, um, grow, fully grown man and in politics and, you know, has become this really controversial uh, figure. Calhoun stops in Virginia in the area where his family uh, had lived. Where was that? Uh, it's, it's in, um, I mean, it's across the, the, uh, I'd have to go look to see the exact county, uh, name of it. But, um, but the key, the key is that, uh, it was an area of Virginia that unusually had, uh, almost no, uh, slaves that we know uh-huh. of. Um, and so, oh, oh yeah, that was, he was from, I think it was Augusta County, wasn't it? What he from? Yeah, so, I thought, that's it. That's it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, and so he goes and, and looks at this land where, uh, you know, his family had lived and, um, and writes, uh, writes about it. And he's obviously kind of wondering like what might've happened if I stayed in Virginia, would I have been part of the Virginia dynasty? You know, would I have had that, <laughs> that uh, that advantage, you know, in politics. Um, yeah, he would have had tremendous, uh, the answer would be no. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, he, he would have had tremendous, tremendous, uh, it, it was interesting that things worked out. I mean, what, what I'm constantly driving at is that Carolina is a place apart. Yep. Uh, and there is, as, 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 we, as Southern historians know, there's nothing quite like South Carolina. Um, <laughs> uh, and uh, it, the words of James L. Pettigrew continually echo through my uh, my 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 head as I read your book. Uh, South Carolina too large, uh, too was it too large, too small for a republic, too, too large, large for an insane for, asylum. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, I use and, that. I use that all the time, which I can since my wife is from South Carolina. But <laughs> well, and part of the second half of this book is is South Carolina's progress towards being the largest open air insane asylum in the world. Yeah, um, it is with with Calhoun as warden. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and 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 doctor in residence. Yeah. Um, so theorizer. So let's. I wanted it. There's. There's. It's a very. It's a very large book, as some as some reviews have noted. Yep. Um, uh, which I 
did not mind because I just can't get enough. Uh, but, uh, that's good. I imagine some people will mind. <laughs> some people are going to mind, but for those, some of us are addicts. Uh, yeah. uh, that this. Um, so I wanted to divide this into sort of like knots in a rope. Um, there are certain moments in Calhoun's life um, which uh, tells a great deal. Mm. And I've even got some texts I want to pull up that we can maybe chew over a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first of them would be the death of Calhoun's father, which says something about uh, Calhoun as a father and something about his education. And I think also something very fundamental about his relationship with the people that he enslaves. Mm-hmm. So why don't you unpack that for us? Yeah. Well, I think for me, uh, the key moment is when you read Calhoun's uh, campaign biography that, that's published in 1843, which is uh, not tech, it's not technically written by him, but he clearly had a lot of input on it. And, and uh, it's, it's kind of a composite of some other things that were published. And there's a lot in there. Um, there's a lot in there about his father and kind of conversations with his father that he remembered. And he's not writing it in, you're hearing it, you know, in third person, of course. Um, and yet these are things that clearly stuck with him. And when you realize that, you know, his father died when he was uh, very, very young. Um, How young was he? Um, he was uh, 13, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, he was he had he had just turned uh, 13. Well, he'd thir- yeah, he had turned 13 uh, right before his father died. And um, so, you know, you can imagine, I have a 12 year old son, I can sort of imagine the kind of trauma that that would be on a kind of thoughtful young kid. Um, and I think, I think where you see this is that he, he writes about kind of the moment or you get in third person in this campaign biography in a very impersonal way, but I think it reflects a really uh, potent memory for Calhoun, uh, kind of the moment that he heard about his father's death uh, and he's staying with his sister and her husband, uh, Moses Waddell, and his, his sister dies about three weeks after his father. Um, so there's this kind of concatenation of tragic uh, events that I think really, really had a had an influence on him, but he remembers the details of kind of how his brother-in-law left uh, after his his sister dies, Moses Waddell's wife dies. His brother leaves, and Calhoun is kind of alone on this plantation in Georgia uh, with a little library, and he remembers of what he read down to the details of where he stopped in yeah. John Locke's essay. Yeah, I saw that. Understanding. Uh, but the, but a 13 year old reading Locke's essay well, on human understanding. Right. That's the, yeah. Uh, Which that alone tells you a lot about Calhoun. Um, it's something that I think it's very interesting. Cause I read that. I thought, I, I think I put in my margin. It's something that any future professor would remember. Yeah. It's very much the act of an intellectual to disassociate, I mean, I don't want yeah. to get all cheap Freudian here, yeah. Uh, but often that's so often accurate. Yeah. Um, to disassociate from the trauma and grief going, I mean, this is what I would do. Yeah. It's what I have done, um, yeah. is to just associate by then immersing oneself in reading. And then ha- that the, the clarity, the grief brings, the pain somehow also impressed those things in his memory. I just imagine this 13-year-old boy in the backwoods of Georgia reading these books and just 
uh, while his entire soul is suffused with grief. Yeah. I mean, I think the other really telling part about it is that um, for me, it was he, he describes himself as having been completely alone, right? Yeah. And yet he can't have been alone. Uh, uh, there were almost certainly enslaved people on this plantation uh, making everything run at the same time that he was sitting there reading these books and buried in his, 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 his own grief. And I think, you know, I think there's, uh, there's something really um, important in that too, in that uh, like probably a lot of other white Southerners, Calhoun for the first part of his life did not think a lot about not just slavery, but enslaved people themselves. He, he just took them for granted as part of the part of the world he lived in. Yeah. Yeah. And yet soon afterwards he goes back, he he's taken, well, we should describe his brother-in-law's school because that's where he is. Isn't he at yeah. the school? Or is he, he's, he's just about to start. A t- he'd been sent to live with Waddell to go to the school and he doesn't, he ends up not going then. Um, yeah. He goes back to live with his mother. Four years later, he'll come back and go to Waddell school. But And so the next four, the next four years, he's actually working in the field. Yeah, we don't know. We know hardly anything about that time period. There's just, there's, you know, it's four years that are basically a, a, a blank in his, mm-hmm. uh, certainly in his later memories and things like that. And the only thing we know is that he was on his father's plantation with his mother and sometimes uh, one of his brothers uh, helping to run the plantation. And, and, and there's, he's very proud well, not proud. He, we'll get to this later, but in a conversation with John Quincy Adams, I think, and others, he says, yes, I, you know, I, I'm, I was not so averse to labor that I did not know how to plow. Right. Uh, one of, uh, an enslaved man, Sonny, who's with him at the time and then for the rest of his life, mm-hmm. um, he says that Calhoun and he had plowed together. Right. There's, so... What I, I've I've mentioned that anecdote to students in the past to uh, de- show them that slavery is not what either what we see in Gone with the Wind or in lots of much more modern conceptions of mm-hmm. it that slavery is terribly intimate. Yeah, well, it also I think is key, is a key dis- there's a key distinction between what slavery looks like in the back country or up country. Yep. And what it looks like in the low country. And so I think this is, and this will be, this is a, for me, this is a continuing theme throughout the book is the deep distinction between uh, Calhoun's identity as some, as as someone from the up country of South Mm -hmm. Carolina, which he sees and in reality was more small D democratic uh, than, than other parts of South Carolina. Um, and also uh, practiced a, a you know forms of slavery that looked very different than the the sprawling low country plantations that 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 his wife came from, um, the world that his wife came from, and you know we have plenty of accounts of uh, masters working with enslaved people uh, on these smaller uh, farms. That doesn't mean, of course, that it was more benign. Uh, if you read, if you read Frederick Douglass, right, 
um, yeah. that could make it much, much worse. <laughs> much, much worse. Yeah. But it was different. But it was different. And there's also, a, and yeah, I mean, it, it's going to depend upon all so many different factors. But there's also the possibility that uh, someone that you own, that you enslave, can put a, a hoe in the back of your head, too. I mean, there's right. lots of opportunities for that. Yeah. Um, there's also the, there's also that, uh, gosh, now I can't think of the name for it, but, um, on small places as, as well as large places, there's, uh, sort of going on strike by going off into the woods yeah. to avoid, uh, avoid laboring. Yeah. Um, well, there's, there's lots of, uh, there's, there are accounts of, um, <clears throat> uh, enslaved people, poisoning their masters or attempting to poison their masters, uh, on, uh, including, including Calhoun's, uh, you know, future wife, her father, uh, there's a, there's a pretty well-known episode where his slaves evidently, uh, tried to poison him. And yeah, that was a constant reality. It's also hard to, um, separate those stories from the constant continuous paranoia that that might happen. Right. Yeah. Yeah. uh, also given and given the the state of, of knowledge of disease and food poisoning yeah <laughs> uh, in 19th century america yeah. it's really sometimes hard to parse this too but let's let's fast forward so he's he ends up back at his brother-in-law's school where which is an extraordinary little place and he's very well educated there mm-hmm. um could you briefly describe that and then the next twist of the the next curious twist of the calhoun story yeah. So Waddell's schools are, are, uh, famous. Um, you know, uh, they're kind of these little backwoods academies that, that, uh, employed what we would today call kind of classical education, but also some really interesting kind of social experiments, uh, like, uh, fairly democratic forms of discipline. And, you know, uh, there's some accounts of like students, living in small huts where, you know, they would kind of live around the central house and be called in every day by a, by a trumpet to, to study. And, um, so, you know, if you were a, if you were a really ambitious, uh, backcountry planter, this was where you would send your son in the hopes that they might be able to compete with the, with the low country elite. Um, and, you can just go down the list and, and there's so many people that come out of Moses Waddell's Academy that end up in national politics. Uh, George McDuffie, Calhoun's future Lieutenant and sometimes uh, nemesis uh, (laughs) goes there. He's actually sponsored by the Calhoun uh, family to go there. Um, And yeah, Crawford, William Crawford, uh, who ends up being another one of Calhoun's, uh, um, well, nemesis. Yeah. Nemesis, uh, in, in national politics goes there. So it was, it became a very well-known, well, it became a legendary place really. And, uh, Calhoun goes there after deciding basically that he is going to have some sort of a, of a national career. He makes this deal with his brothers and mother that if they will pay for him to have the sort of education he wants, um, <clears throat> which includes Waddell and some sort of famous, uh, you know, some something uh, he always is looking beyond Waddell, um, that that he'll go do it, right? And so Waddell is a stepping stone, but an important one. And Waddell is his brother-in-law, and they they maintain they they're close 
for the rest of Calhoun's life. And Waddell is, you know, a Presbyterian clergyman. He's famously pious. Um, and Calhoun drifts away from that. But he's one of the things that I kind of found is that Calhoun is always around people like that. And he is never, he's never hostile in any way to this kind of uh, form of Christianity that he's very used to, even though he, he himself is uh, temperamentally kind of unsuited for it. So he's very different from uh, from Jefferson, or particularly the circle around Jefferson, who sort of become Virginia Unitarians and certainly anti-Calvinists. Yeah, well, Calhoun definitely gravitates towards Unitarianism, but it's never in a way he doesn't he doesn't do it in such a hostile way as as uh, people like Jefferson. Uh, you know, develop attitudes towards religion. He seems to always uh, kind of acknowledge that maybe, yes, this is this is real religion, but not for me uh, yeah. sort of attitude. No, I, yeah. Yeah, I've just been reading, there's an incident, John Trumbull, when he breaks with Jefferson in 1794, it's because of other Virginians speaking, sneering to him about uh, Calvinism. Trumbull was probably an atheist at the time, yeah. um, or certainly an agnostic, um, He'll ret- he, but he is so disgusted with this and the insults that he he leaves, he walks out of the dinner uh, table, hmm. uh, which is it's an interesting little insight. And Jefferson, he's particularly upset because Jefferson says nothing. Calhoun's not like that. No, he's not like that, but he, he does... He does um... You know, as South Carolina becomes more evangelical over the course of his lifetime, uh, it becomes a well-known fact, a kind of an open secret that Calhoun is religiously heterodox. And that's why at the end of his life, you get James Henley Thornwell, or sorry, Mm -hmm. after his death, you, you get James Henley Thornwell kind of gently reminding students that Calhoun was a great politician, but you know, don't, don't follow him when it comes to religious matters, kind of steer clear of (laughs) Unitarianism. So Calhoun, after how, two years, four years at his brother-in-law's academy of all places goes to Yale. And so we've got sort of a series of incidents in his life because he does, he stays not just for Yale, but to to the, the Litchfield, Connecticut stay law with tapping Reeve. Right. Um, And we've got a series of incidents in his life that probably Jane Austen would have used as material. Mm -hmm. Um, So could you explain this, this, the, the oddity of this Carolinian in Connecticut? Yeah. Well, I think the key is that, you know, um, or the key to understanding why it's so odd is that Calhoun's father and clearly he himself even by this age are are uh, kind of dyed in the wool Jeffersonians. Um, that, you know that's how they see themselves. They see themselves as as kind of Jeffersonian Republicans. Calhoun saw himself that way, and Yale is possibly the last place <laughs> that somebody <laughs> like that would possibly feel at home, especially under a figure like Timothy Dwight, um, who uh, uh, one of Dwight's enemies calls him the Federalist Pope of New England. <laughs> and uh, and yet he ends up at, at Yale. And then, as you said, he ends up at, in, in Litchfield, Connecticut at Tapping Reeves, this very innovative uh, law school that Tapping Reeves uh, presides over, which is also another hotbed of federalism. Yeah. I mean, it, if T- Timothy Dwight's not hot uh, federalist enough for you, Tapping Reeve is even more right. ultra federalist, I guess. Yeah. 
and and so i think that so people have always wondered this about calhoun and a lot of people including some of his enemies later on people like uh, john randolph uh kind of attribute some of Calhoun's early nationalist views to his time in Connecticut and, you know, his sojourn among the Federalists, right? Yeah. And uh, I, I, that may be true, but I didn't find any evidence of it. The, the more evidence suggests that, you know, Calhoun was simply willing to go into these places, still be who he was. And the key to understanding why he wanted to go there, I think, is ambition. Mm-hmm. Uh, that he understood that, if he could get the sort of elite education that gave you an entrance into um, the relationships and the social spheres and the political spheres that that were the prerequisites for the kind of career that I, th- I think he already had in mind. I mean, um, that that's why he wanted to go to those places and why the, the kind of fledgling schools uh, in other parts of the country were not were not good enough for him. Um, so he's he's willing to to deal with Yale for that reason, and, and his fellow classmates remembered him for decades afterward as a a Jeffersonian who did not hesitate to debate Timothy Dwight. Right, all the memories that the scattered memories that people have of him at, at Yale are all of him uh, uh, challenging the Federalist ethos of the place. Um, Although he was very popular uh, at Yale, um, you know, I, I found several of his classmates who'd named children after him. There's this one awful uh, little poem that that somebody <laughs> wrote. That's it, it's awful in the sense of bad poetry, but it's very admiring about Calhoun. Um, and so he's he's kind of admired uh, at Yale, even though he's a certainly a, a political a political oddity. Mm-hmm. And there's there's something I'm thinking about the ways in which um, people see him not just as a heretic but as as a, as a Luciferian, mm-hmm. in, in which he is uh, he sets that as at, at Yale, uh, he is defiant yeah. against the divine edicts of Timothy Dwight, mm-hmm. the Pope, of, the Federalist Pope. <laughs> um, he he will not bend the knee yeah. to the the Fed, to tapping even to tapping Reeve. You know he is. He's he knows who he is even then, and he will not serve. Yeah, no there there is uh, there is definitely an inflexibility to him uh, even then, but it, it's always mixed with this. You know, pe- people even his, many of his political enemies who found him uh, intolerable. A lot of people would uh, comment throughout his life on kind of his his uh not just he was very mannerly but also that he was relatively warm in interpersonal relationships even though he was unrelentingly cerebral yeah i i, I was stunned actually i don't I, as i said to you in an email i've thought of i've thought of calvin too much as a mind rather than as a man and, uh, and i i i was stunned by how that he had an emotional life yeah, uh, I mean, he has, I mean, I, I guess I knew about the grief and all that, I mean, that when he was a 13 year old, but really, I mean, he is a very, his emotion, his relationships. And I, I guess I knew about his relations with his wife and I just sort of checked that as part of the cast iron man right. uh, stereotype, uh, but his relationships with all of his children, not just, uh, we'll get to Anna, Anna but, but they're all as, as deep as, as the others would allow, I think. Yeah, I, I think that's the only place where you do get um, people 
um, commenting on, uh, you know, when he, when he dies, uh, Henry Clay and Daniel Webster both comment on this in their, uh, in their eulogies for him, that he was, you know, that he, Webster says he never, you know, he never met anyone who took as little time in recreation as Calhoun, except for the fact that Calhoun is always willing to talk with his friends. Hmm. And, and so there's always those sorts of hints, but the only place you really see that come out ever in his correspondence is with his children. And unfortunately, we just don't have many of his letters uh, to his wife, Floride, and and we have almost none of her letters to him. And whether that, it, it seems, I think he wrote her a lot of letters that we don't have. It seems that she did not write him very often at all. I, I would imagine that she burned a lot of his. Yeah, th- that very well could be um, and would would make a lot of sense. It'd be pretty typical. Yeah, exactly. But he, he constantly is complaining that at least early in their marriage about how little she writes him. And eventually I I think he just gives up. He's not the only husband in the uh, 18th or or 19th century that, that complains about that. And, and there's more than one uh, wife who's also very uneasy about the quality of their education. Yeah. Well, in, in Florida's case, I think, and first of all, you can imagine like she's trying to run a household and then has, uh, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. she's not kids. Abigail Adams. Right. She's not, yeah. And, and so there's good reasons that she's not writing, <laughs> writing yeah, back, yeah. but she, and there may be some, there may, she was, uh, um, well educated for the day, but there may have been some insecurity there too. Uh, but she, she wrote to her children much more, at least from oh. her surviving correspondence, she wrote to her children much more than she ever wrote to him. So uh, let's, it, not surprisingly, uh, given the deep, fierce ambition that he already has, uh, he's not content to practice law no. in up, up country South Carolina, Abbeville, which is still to this day far from most things. Yep. Um, and he spends only two years, uh, one term in the South Carolina legislature, right. makes it into Congress, and like with a great precocity becomes one of the key figures in the House, along with another, with Henry Clay, who's also in his first term, I think, when he becomes a Speaker of the House. Uh, first uh, term, yeah. In, yeah, in the House. In the House. Yeah, first term in the House, he becomes Speaker. Mm-hmm. Um, and Calhoun is, uh, also becomes a very loud voice on the um, on the floor, could you briefly describe sort of Calhoun as um, as a sort of Jeffersonian Federalist? Yeah, <laughs> um, as as the as the War of 1812 comes and progresses. Well, he he comes in as uh, you know Henry Adams, who wrote the, these great histories of the uh, of this era. Right, he describes how Calhoun and Clay and some of these other. Uh, Republicans come in as a completely new breed of kind of nationalist uh, Republicans, much to the frustration of, (laughs) you know, uh, people like John Randolph, who are trying to uh, keep the United States out of war with Great Britain. And then you have people who are supposedly part of his own political affiliation coming in and and pushing for it. Um, So I, I think you know, Calhoun, 
uh, the key is that by the time he got to Washington, he's already committed. He's already part of the war party. That's why he was elected. Um, is that he is he is drawing was kind of his first lesson in kind of how to uh, use political sentiment back home to propel him uh, to Washington. He's elected because of the war sentiment back home, and he comes in at this moment. Uh, when there's a lot of negotiation going on about whether or not to go to war. And you have uh, people like John Randolph uh, uh, trying to resist this, um, you know, vehemently. And there is uh, this, there's one speech that Calhoun uh, gives in 18, the end of uh, 1811, on December 12th, actually, where he answers John Randolph. And um, I think that this speech, more than anything else, kind of makes his uh, reputation. Randolph had given this, you know, one of his incredibly long vitriolic diatribes uh, against the administration and uh, against the war. And um, Calhoun uh, stands up and gives this lengthy but incredibly logical response, where he just uh, demolishes each of uh, each of Randolph's points in quick succession. And nobody, people had had not treated John Randolph quite like this before. And people on Calhoun's side are just thrilled that somebody has finally kind of taken the measure of John Randolph. Randolph himself is, uh, you know hates Calhoun for it, uh, for the rest of his life, uh, I think. But so, so Calhoun's big, uh, um, job, you know, I, uh, one of the ways that people refer to him is as the great gun of the party. That's one of the lines that I use as a chapter title is that he's constantly, uh, trying in a democratic, uh, government to, tamp down the opposition and get the support and organization that the, that the war effort needs. And this is where he gets his reputation as a nationalist because he's always uh, opposing uh, the minority Randolph and, and the federalists, you know, some of his own party and Randolph, the Republicans and, and the, the rest of the federalists and trying to get funding and, and men for the war and he's one of the main cogs in the political machinery that, to the extent that Americans do fight the war, <laughs> uh, lets them do that. And he sees it as, a, as an act of kind of national creation. You know, he's, he clearly sees that what's going on is they're not only fighting a war, but fighting a war for some sort of national identity uh, at the same time. So... Yeah, it's a, it's a, uh, but it's a departure. I think it's a, he comes on the scene as a sort of, um, as a new thing in, in American politics, these, these, uh, these Republicans who, you know, are advocating many of the same things that the Federalists had been advocating in the 1790s. Right. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, uh, and this, the irony of that is not lost at all on people like John Randolph um, but Calhoun simply believes that this is what the moment calls for. It calls for, it calls for an army. It calls for taxes. It calls for all these things that Republicans had been opposed, a Navy, you know, that, and all these things that Republicans were supposed to be, 
opposed to, but that circumstances demanded. And that emphasis on the context of political ideology is uh, a constant throughout Calhoun's life. He's very, uh, in that sense, he's he's very realist or real politic or however you want to put it. Yeah, he he allows he does allow events to change his mind, even though he might insist that they don't. Right. Yeah, <clears throat> he he insists they don't always, unless unless he's having to respond to a <laughs> political opponent. Uh, in which case he can tell you exactly why circumstances should change your mind. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, amazingly enough, in 1816, at the age of 34. Yeah, he's 34. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's in Monroe's new administration. Mm-hmm. He becomes Secretary of War. Yeah. 34 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, is that still a record? I think it must be. It I, has to be. I don't know that. That's a very good question. I don't. And, and, and it turns out that over the next eight years, I mean, I said, I think I said this before, he's, he, I think there's an argument that he is the greatest peacetime Secretary of War in the 19th century and maybe even. Well, okay, maybe even in the 20th century. That that would be he's certainly in the top three. Let's put it that way. Well, in terms of in terms of his influence over the course of the national government and the nation, I think that's that's certainly true. And it's because because he basically takes what looks like the the failure of the of the War of 1812. What we see is a is a failure. Yeah, and he turns it into a a continental victory, mm-hmm. uh, which and basically fulfills Jefferson's dream of the empire of liberty and, and which will remove any great power competition from happening on the North American continent. I mean, Calhoun puts that into action. Yeah. I think, I think one of the key insights on this is that, you know, Alan Taylor's uh, history of the war of 1812 makes the point that while we think of that as a not inconsequential war, but we don't think of it as a big, as a, as big a deal as it was, um, that it leaves the United States in control of the North American continent, right? right. And Calhoun is the one who then turn. I mean, if you had to make the, the the case for one or, you know, he's in the top three figures of people who turn around and then construct the uh, the administrative machinery that allows the United States to become a continental empire. Mm-hmm. Um, and he and he does that. You know, he gets the chance to go into the War Department um, almost by accident. You know, a couple other people have turned the uh, have turned the job down, and it's only because he had started at the end of the war. He had started giving these speeches uh, in Congress about what the United States should do next in terms of its military organization and things like that. And so Monroe turns to him. Uh, and Calhoun, you know, his friends advised him not to take it, but Calhoun is always looking, you know, he, he, he's looking towards the presidency already. There's just no yeah, question. There's no it. doubt about that, right? Yeah, there's no doubt about it. Um, he ha and he has been, you know, since he was, I think since he was 17 years old, <laughs> Yeah. um, at least. And, and so he sees that going into the administration, not only does he think like the, the, the major work is done in Congress, right? Now that the war is over, the place to be is the administration, but he sees that he needs to prove that he can, uh, uh, that he can uh, live up to the executive demands of, of the presidency and the, the War Department is the place to do it. And uh, I don't 
you know, that is one, one area that I think the book makes a contribution is I don't think anybody had fully delved into all the different reforms that Calhoun made in the war department uh, that essentially revolutionized it. And, and, you know, the war department is in charge of so much more in Calhoun's day than it was even now. It's not just in charge of external uh, um, defense, but it's in charge of everything having to do with the continental sprawl of the United States. I mean, it, it incorporates what would come, what would eventually be the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Uh, he's responsible for all sorts of exploratory expeditions, uh, kind of mapping out the continent. Um, but I think his main contributions are administrative in the sense that he centralizes control of uh, the military and all these other things in Washington, ironically, given Calhoun's trajectory and where he ended up. But he, he, he centralizes control of all this under his control in the War Department, and he systematizes it. He issues regula regulations by the bucketful so that um, by the end of his um, by the end of his term as Secretary of War, uh, he he says the system ran of itself, which is not quite true, but it's certainly true that that it, it ran much more smoothly uh, than it had when he came in. And it's it's you know it's it's an incredible we, we should we should go through this. I mean, it, it, he he had. Uh, sends an exp uh, exploring mission up the Missouri on a steamboat by the end of his term. Yeah. The entire middle time, he basically creates West Point as we know it. It's been around for a decade, but he's the one that hires Sylvanus there. Right. Who creates what we know as West Point. The first, which we have to point out, is the first engineering school in the United States. And that's Calhoun's vision. Uh, he creates fort after fort after fort, like, you know, pepper pots all along the Eastern seaboard, right. which is an amazing uh, capital expenditure yeah. and source of patronage. I mean, these are very expensive undertakings in 1816. Yeah. Um, this is all part. Of, he also is surveying canals. I couldn't believe it when I read that he's surveying the Chesapeake and Ohio canal and where it will go and very craftily points out they should build the hardest part first, right yeah. in the middle of the Appalachians. He's doing all this sort of stuff. Uh, is all coming out of the War Department, not to mention treaty after treaty after treaty uh, with the various Native tribes. Right. Uh, and tellingly, he is, you can see in his policy, he's moving from, say, the policy of Washington and Knox in the 1790s to treat the Indian tribes as sovereign nations, protectorates mm -hmm. within the United States towards basically an insistence that all Indians will be citizens of the United States. Right. I mean, which is hugely consequential, as as Andrew Jackson will prove. Yeah. Um, I mean, this could go. This the list keeps on going. Yeah. No, I think I think that's there's almost. I mean, I I didn't want to, but I could have written an entire book just about yeah, his years in the War Department. Someone kind of needs to write a book about uh, yeah. those years because we're and also this is you know this is him taking also the young guys who had 
there were all these terrible Revolutionary War veterans. I mean, they were great once when they were like 23, but they were like in their 60s and 70s, Dear, <laughs> Dearborn, you know, others, others. Um, and the, they have been cleared out by the War of 1812 and people like Winfield Scott have come up. Mm-hmm. And Calhoun makes sure that they're going to be the leaders of the army. Yeah. Um, there people, and he, there's lots of stuff that he does. Yeah. He, I mean, he, he wants a scientific approach to everything, right? I mean, he wants, he wants, you know, Thayer, who, uh, Sylvanus Thayer, who he appoints to West Point, certainly deserves a lot of the credit for West Point. Sure. But Calhoun is helping him do that. I mean, Thayer is is putting into practice a vision that that Calhoun is encouraging him to to put in, and it's an intensely practical uh, uh, curriculum and not the not the old-fashioned classical curriculum that Calhoun himself has been educated toward. It's a very, very uh, democratic um, curriculum because the vision of West Point is, you know, we're going to take talent, not prestige. And uh, and that's that's going to be who we recruit. But the, the key, if you wanted to be cynical about all the things that you just said, right, one yeah. of the keys is it gives Calhoun power over an immense amount of the budget and their oh, absolutely. patronage. <laughs> no, 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 yeah. that's absolutely true. And I mean, even in West Point, he's building a Jeffersonian meritocracy. Right. Um, uh, in has in a resonance uh, similar to Jefferson's sort of memo or theory, uh, a plan or bill for uh, education in Virginia. He's trying to select from across classes and, right. and, and the United States. But they're all, of course, they're all beholden to John C. Caldwell Calhoun. Yeah, I mean, he's right. the one that's his finger is touching them and elevating them into the academy. Mm-hmm. Um, this is this is all him. Yeah. Uh, it's just as good as appointing a postmaster somewhere in Indiana. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know? and and he also, you know, you pointed this out, but um, he presides over treaties that that uh, you know take away land from. Uh, from Indians on a vast scale, and according to according to Calhoun's conception, right? These are, these are all kind of voluntary treaties, but we know that that's not how the sausage was usually made down at the level where they were being negotiated. Um, but, you know, he's operating, uh, you know, again, somebody could write at least a whole article and, and there have been some great, there have been some great articles about, um, Indian policy during his tenure as secretary of war. Um, but they're operating on this theory that of be- whether how sincere it was is is uh, debatable. But they're operating on this theory that Indians will eventually be incorporated as citizens into the United States, and that maybe uh, what they need is just you know time, and therefore it's better for them if they will leave and go west because that gives them more time to. Uh, develop as a people, and um, and and Calhoun's um, as as mercenary and self-serving as that attitude is, and you know, I just have to say it for us to to realize how how that's true. Um, it is different than uh, what Calhoun is constantly holding off, even during his years as Secretary of War, which is Andrew Jackson. Uh, you know, who thinks that dealing with Indians in any way other than simply brute force is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But it, it's a, I mean, it, the just the amount of land, I started to try to add up and like the number of acres that Calhoun added 
through these treaties in, um, over the course of his tenure in office. And um, I think I, I kind of estimate it, but I eventually gave up because it was just too much. There was just so much. So in the midst of all this comes the fire bell in the night, mm-hmm. as Jefferson called it, the uh, the controversy over Missouri in early 1820. And I would just read uh, to you from uh, a passage which has always gripped me from John Quincy Adams' diary, mm-hmm. um, where John Quincy Adams, uh, who, like all Adams, is is a snob about his intellect, um, and but believes that basically John Calhoun is his only equal mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to intellect, mm-hmm. and also I think genuinely likes him as a friend, mm-hmm. uh, likes him as a man. This is February twenty fourth, eighteen twenty. I had some conversation with Calhoun on the slave question pending in Congress. He said he did not think it would produce a dissolution of the Union. But if it should, the South would be from necessity compelled to form an alliance, offensive and defensive, with Great Britain. I said that would be returning to the colonial state. He said yes, pretty much, but it would be forced upon them. I asked him whether he thought, if by the effect of this alliance, offensive and defensive, the population of the North should be cut off from its natural outlet upon the ocean, it would fall back upon its rocks bound hand and foot to starve, or whether it would not retain its powers of locomotion to move southward by land. Then, he said, they would find it necessary to make their communities all military. I pressed the conversation no further. And he goes on with some very interesting comments, but we'll just leave it at that for the moment. Could mm-hmm. you unpack that? I mean, because that's an, given what he had just been saying eight years before, yeah. it shows what Jefferson means by it being a fi- the Missouri uh, crisis being a firebell in the night. It's, it's something which is galvanizing to people. It changes their perception of things. So what's he saying? Yeah. Well, what I what I really wonder about that passage is, you know, Adams is emphasizing how he's amazed by Calhoun, what Calhoun's admitting there, right? Which yeah. Calhoun's basically admitting, yes, the union could come apart over this question, uh, possibly, right? Uh, even though I don't, I don't think it'll actually happen. But what I wonder is whether, uh, whether we're getting a window into Calhoun's own realization of, of what that moment meant there or not. Um, if this was something that he just had already believed, you know, did he, at what point did he develop this, this, uh, idea that the, that the union might split over slavery? Um, or if it's something that he is also realizing and he just Adams hits him at the right moment. Um, but I think he's he's probably reflecting there something that he had probably heard a lot in South Carolina and, and that he actually thought, which was that, yeah, that, that the issue Calhoun never uh, or for a long time, he wanted the issue of slavery not to be a national issue. Right. Um, but he knew that for for some people in South Carolina, it was. And. And so I think, uh, you know, what you're hearing there is he is kind of acknowledging to Adams that, yeah, this this could turn into a a huge, uh, a huge, um, a huge deal that could split the union. And, you know, the South might ally itself with Great Britain, you know, Um, and I think that's the you know, this is the conversation where. Adams writes later that this led me into a momentous train of thought, mm-hmm. uh, by which he means, you know, I'm 
uh, he's realizing that the issue of slavery could actually lead to a dissolution of the union. And Calhoun has just kind of uh, admitted that. Um, but it, it's always interesting with Adams, though, because you never quite know if you're getting um, like what view of, uh, of if you're getting an accurate read of what the person actually said or not. Very true. Um, and, and that conversation in particular, I really wonder about because, you know, this uh, Calhoun did not want disunion, uh, especially at that point. He wanted to be president. And yet he's kind of pessimistically saying, yeah, it could, it could happen. Well, he just, he had just was one of the most ferocious advocates for war on Great Britain. Right. As for the last six years, he's been completely reorienting, creating an American military establishment. He's not reorienting it. There there wasn't really much of one before. He's creating a military establishment to enable it to fight against Britain again in a defensive war. Right. That's the only only possible enemy. And then to have him say this and to say that they would just, uh, they would create, um, uh, their communities would become militarized, which is something even for a, a Jeffersonian federalist, if you want to call him that, uh, even for him, that's like, that's a complete, uh, uh, who still has a maybe a little bit of a dislike of a standing army. Yeah. Um, that's an incredible series of things to say. Well, but you also wonder if in that, it, is Calhoun doing what he would do over and over again in his career, which was to tell his Northern colleagues, if you do this, this is what will happen, right? Mm-hmm. And so is he is he already uh, in that sense trying to play Adams or or set Adams up to to believe that the South is not bluffing, right? That this this disunion could happen over the slave question, so that Adams and other Northerners will uh, will compromise, right? So that they yeah. will yield more in the compromise. And that's one of the things that's, that's fascinating to me about that conversation is that I know that this is not what Calhoun wanted to happen at this point. And, and in admitting it to Adams, which Adam, you know, astonishes Adams, is he, is he just kind of trying to soften Adams up or, uh, you know, scare Adams? Is he trying to scare Adams so that uh, there will be kind of more room for the, for the negotiations? I, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Have they had a brandy and he's just, you know, sort of turning ideas over in his head. Yeah. You know, it's the, it's very difficult to say, but one more, one more passage from Adam's diary from March 2nd, uh, 1820, uh, the Missouri compromise has just been passed. Could you remind me what that is? Because I think I got a D on that quiz in high school and it still, <laughs> it still burns me a little bit. That's Maine will come in as a free state in exchange for Missouri being a slave state, which. Right. And, and then, uh, well, yeah, Missouri comes in. Maine as- had no inclination of being a slave state. I just, that's always, that was always the problem. Maybe that's why I got a D. I couldn't figure out which what's is the, why what's the was, compromise. Which is why it was an effective negotiating, right? There was no question about Maine. And so yeah. therefore in return for that, if you, they let, they let Missouri come in as a slave state, it's actually a, an attractive thing to, to Southerners. But then the, the, the other compromise of course, is the 3630 line on Missouri's Southern border, which is, you know, probably the most important part of it in terms of figuring out what the future of the Louisiana purchase is, but also, you know, the future of slavery in, in the United States. Um, so, 
you know, this line across Missouri's southern border above that, with the exception of Missouri, uh, everything that comes in from the Louisiana Purchase will be free state. Below that, everything will be a slave state. Um, but already by that period, people are looking further west and looking at places like Texas and things like mm -hmm. that. So, so I so, think that's the compromise part of it. So Adams is describing a cabinet meeting after it's been passed. Um, and by the way, his cabinet meetings, at least according in his in his uh, telling, seem a lot more interesting than I assume that they are these days. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, because <laughs> they sound it sounds like a really good uh, debating society. Yeah. As Adams yeah. tells it, he says, "What can be more needful for the establishment of justice than the interdiction of slavery where it does not exist?" Mm -hmm. Yeah. After this meeting, I walked home with Calhoun, who said that the principles which I had avowed were just and noble, but that in the Southern country, wherever they were mentioned, they were always understood as applying only to white men. Mm -hmm. Domestic labor was confined to blacks, and such was the prejudice that if he who was the most popular man in his district were to keep a white servant in his house, his character and reputation would be irretrievably ruined. I said that this confounding of ideas of servitude and labor was one of the bad effects of slavery, but he thought it attended with many excellent consequences. It did not apply to all kinds of labor, not, for example, to farming. He himself had often held the plow, so had his father. Manufacturing and mechanical work was not degrading. It was only manual labor, the proper work of slaves. Mm -hmm. No white person could descend to that, and it was the best guarantee to equality among the whites. There produced an unvarying level among them. It not only did not excite, but did not even admit of inequalities by which one white man could domineer over another. I told Calhoun I could not see things in the same light. It is, in truth, all perverted sentiment, mistaking labor for slavery and dominion for slave freedom. The discussion of this Missouri question has betrayed the secret of their souls. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. and many other good things after this, but that's we'll just stick with what his conversation with Calhoun. That's a uh, that's a passage that uh, American historians have been getting a lot of gasoline out of, a lot of fuel in their intellectual tank for for decades. Um, what do you think he's telling the truth? Well, I, mean, I think I think uh, yeah, I think Adams is telling the truth because, uh, but I'm not sure that Adams. What's interesting to me is the question of whether Adams realized <clears throat> um, just how deeply Calhoun diverged from the old necessary evil argument about slavery, right? Which Calhoun is already denying in what he tells to Adams. And Ab Adams doesn't, doesn't quite comment on that, right? I mean, he, he says it's wrong and this is uh, monstrous, but Calhoun has essentially as early, in 1820 previewed mm -hmm. the argument that he's going to start making by the, you know, the end of the 1830s. It's amazing how it, it you would almost, I, it, I've often wondered if Adams didn't go back and change this because, but he couldn't have done um, it because it's so uh, prescient of what, Cal, of the arguments that Calhoun will be yeah. making as a political and social theorist. Well, and it's one of the, it's one of the very first and only windows we get into Calhoun's thinking this is why this is why people who've written biographies of Calhoun always have to you know use this passage because we yep. have so few other things to go on about what he what he actually th thought explicitly about slavery this early and this is this is one of the only ones um 
And I think so. The, I think the key to this conversation is that in the cabinet meeting, they had all been arguing over this question of constitutionally, can Congress limit slavery from a territory, right? And and Adams had had uh, tried to get around uh, some of the constitutional questions by arguing that that the Declaration of Independence. Uh, should be the kind of guiding principle that they go on, that this principle of all men being created equal is a fundamental American principle. And how can we admit slavery? How can we admit slavery into a state where it doesn't already exist? Because John Quincy of- Adams, West Coast Straussian, go yeah. on. <laughs> uh, and, and so um, Calhoun is responding to that when he says the principles that you talked about are, are you know, good ones but we understand it as only applying to white people and what he's what he's saying there is is a is a kind of version of illiberal democracy that uh that i think you really have to understand to understand calhoun that he believes that he is part of the jeffersonian tradition and he believes in uh you know democracy and all those sorts of things but he has a he has a very racial uh a racial view of it and which which uh, here we i haven't asked you this before but this is where we get into the you know and to what extent is um calhoun a conservative no. uh, um, and this is an endless debate um and, and we could point out that lincoln uh very much is irritated by this in, in his cooper union speech he mm-hmm. takes the mantle of conservative yeah um and I think you say at some point that Calhoun wishes to use the most utopian means possible to preserve things as they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I, our mutual friend, Michael Connolly often used to say, if, um, you know, I don't know what could be more unconservative than ripping up the constitution of the United States, which is sort of Calhoun's sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, this, 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 this is an endless argument, but we have a, a, a preview of what uh, Alexander Stevens will eventually say in that his famous cornerstone speech, a realization that science has marched on, mm-hmm. that we used to believe stupid things in our youth. I'm paraphrasing, yeah. uh, like that Jefferson was right, <laughs> yeah. but now uh, science has portrayed to us that the Negro race is inferior, right, um, well, and that we we've made we we've made progress. And we are now more enlightened than we were. These are weird thing, weird, weird uh, verbs or, or adjectives to use in this case. We're not used to them, but they were using it about themselves. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think um, one of the things that I wanted to do with the book was that I think Calhoun has come to be seen, or the the traditional interpretation of him is as this backwards looking reactionary, right? And yep. Whether he's conservative or not, um, kind of history has left him behind, you know. Mm-hmm. And so you have Richard Hofstadter calling him the Marx of the Master Class. So, but he's, you know, Hofstadter also writes that his his ideas have little more than antiquarian interest for the twentieth century mind, and that he was a, you know, that he was a holdout in an age of advancing democracy and nationalism. 
And you have people like uh, William Harris uh, calling Calhoun a, a dinosaur who survived into the age of mammals, uh, and, and some of these other things. And that's very that's very self congratulatory if you're a mammal. Yeah. Well, or a or a modern American, right? Yeah, yeah for sure. This idea yeah. that we are not Calhoun, right? We've advanced mm. past all this. And one of the things that I wanted to show in the book is that. By the time Calhoun dies, he lives to see the scientific consensus of his day begin coalescing around the conclusion that black people are inferior and that that, you know, that they should be excluded from democracy. And we we look back at it through the lens of the Civil War and the Civil Rights Movement and think that the trajectory of history was headed in one direction. But when Calhoun, or we say something like, or we beg the question by saying, "Oh, Darwin never meant that," right, or something like that. Well, you know, everyone else thought he did, um, um, and and uh, and and, but in 1850, well, even already by the 1830s, uh, you had these kind of proto scientific. I mean, we would call them, sure. we would call them pseudo scientific today, but at the time they were. They had the weight of scientific authority behind them. And who are you to reject science? Exactly. And and so on this on this conclusion that like democracy should be limited to certain groups, Calhoun believed that he that, that history would prove him right, not Jefferson, and that science was starting to prove that. And I think we we've totally lost that. Uh, that element. And that, that fits in perfectly with what Calhoun believed about everything else, which is that his way was the way of progress and uh, reason and science. And he was, he was a conservative. I mean, I would argue he was a conservative. Yeah. Um, And there are important elements in Calhoun that obviously bear comparison to, you know, European conservatives like Burke or, yeah, you know, American conservatives um, before and after him. Uh, but he is he's significantly different in the sense that he believes that you've got to constantly um, you've you've got to constantly change according to circumstance. And he has this very, very uh, this belief that progress is the fundamental uh, engine of human of, of history. And we have to, you know, we have to yeah. constantly be adapting to that. I'm pretty sure that's not in Burke. No, it, it's not I, in Burke. I mean, the reason, I, the reason I, I, people think that, that Calhoun is, Cal, you know, yeah, you, you could, there are elements in Calhoun that certainly bear comparison to Burke, especially his idea, you know, that, that he denies natural rights. Um so Burke's idea of rights is inherited, not not yeah. natural. You know, there's there's certainly resonance there. Um, but Calhoun's Calhoun's sense that the Constitution, in particular, was this thing that could be tampered with and uh, adapted to new information that it should be kind of constantly changing, including at the end, you know, the very end of his life, he he proposes a constitutional amendment for a dual executive. Yep. <laughs> And um, it's hard to see Burke doing stuff like that. It's a very, I mean, Burke would have found that just a, a too, well, a revolutionary change. It just, yeah. It's just too dramatic, too drastic. Yeah. Um, the, let's uh, move on to a very interesting incident, which I think you're the only, well, others have mentioned it, I realize now, but uh, you 
discuss it. And it, it's it's another sort of, uh, of not an incident in Calhoun's life, which I think has is another view into what he's thinking. And that's a visit he makes in 1823. Uh, he's still Secretary of War. Uh, he visits an aging politician and political theorist uh, who lives near the town of Port Royal in Virginia, which is where uh, a great theorist of slavery, uh, Fitz, George Fitzhugh, will later live. Mm-hmm. And we're, and two miles from where John Wilkes Booth is, gets shot. So this is Port Royal has a lot to answer for um, in, in its way. Um, nice place, though. Nice yeah. place. Um, but uh, he, John Taylor of Caroline, um, very briefly, because we're already like an hour into this. Yeah. Um, what's John Taylor of Carol- Taylor's doctrine and why is it kind of surprising and telling that Calhoun visits him? Yeah. Yeah. So this is an episode that none of his other, uh, well, one of the older biographies mentions, but none of the modern biographies uh, uh, mention or make any any uh, any big deal out of. And uh, it's, I think it's, it's one of the keys in understanding the shift that, that Calhoun uh, makes between his kind of nationalist uh, phase and then as he starts to uh, go in a more states' rights sort of direction. And it has to do with the dynamics of the presidential election of 1824, where, you know, technically all of the candidates are uh, uh, Republicans but they're very, very different varieties of Republicans. And Calhoun is trying to fend off the so-called radical Republicans, who he called the radical Republicans, led by William Crawford, who, you know, his old classmate at Moses Waddell's Academy. And, uh, and, and Crawford is kind of leading the states' rights opposition that has been, uh, um, uh, you know, attacking Calhoun for being too nationalist, for being too lax with the Constitution. And so Calhoun, to kind of counter this, he, he obviously sees that he has to counter it if he wants to win. And he goes to visit John Taylor. And the surprising thing about that is that, you know, Taylor is one of the leading lights of the kind of uh, states' rights interpretation of the Constitution. He's one of the last people you would expect somebody like Calhoun to go seek out. And, and Taylor had just published uh, this, this searing attack on uh, the national government and the tariff called Tyranny Unmasked. And um, I think what Calhoun sees in Tyranny Unmasked and Taylor, just to be brief, is, is he sees a, a view that acknowledges a place for the national government as well as uh, defending against uh, encroachment by the national government. So people like John Randolph, the old uh, hardline Republicans had, you know, their view was you've got to keep the national government so weak that it can never hurt you. And uh, Taylor was more nuanced than that. If you actually read Tyranny Unmasked, he believes, no, you need this balance. We're out of whack right now. but you need this balance between state and national governments. And there has to be some way for uh, the state governments to resist federal power, that the founders had instituted all these other checks and balances. um, And he says it's unimaginable that they wouldn't have also instituted some way for states to have a negative on the federal government. He doesn't define what that is, um, but that's, that's part of tyranny unmasked. And after Calhoun's visit to Taylor, 
you just he starts to try to to square himself with the state's rights interpretation of the Constitution and to claim that he had he had never uh, violated <laughs> this the state's rights uh, creed the old um, you know the Virginia the 1798 principles of uh, Jefferson and Madison and the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions. And so I, th- I think Taylor, his visit to Taylor is this key moment where he kind of uh, finds a philosophy that will allow him to begin making that transition. It's, um, you know, I, I, I don't like to talk about like conti- alternate history uh, because as Walter Egger has said, int- the, what actually happened is, is just as interesting and it actually happened. Um, but I was thinking as I couldn't help myself, you know, a lot of these alternate history books that you see around, they, they usually deal with military events, uh, changing things. Uh, but there's a lot of, politi- there should be like an entire genre of political events, mm-hmm. political alternate histories. If Calhoun had been elected president in 1824, it's one of those moments where you can just sort of test contingency. Yeah. It's so many things would be different if mm-hmm. that had happened. Yeah. Um, that I can't even imagine what they are. Yeah, I mean, because his entire career would be radically different. Uh, he would, for one thing, he's only 42 years old. Mm-hmm. He would have been a year younger than Kennedy if he had been elected. Yeah. Um, yeah. And he would have been out when he was 50. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, and he would have governed probably as a, a proto-Whig yeah. in many ways. He yeah. would have, he would, would, there have been canals everywhere. And he would have been a hell of an executive too if his, time as Secretary of War is any indication. Yeah, he he was, I mean, this is one of the objections that a lot of people have to him when he runs for president is how young he is, right? And so right. there's this episode where uh, um, William Seton, who's the publisher of the National Intelligencer, he's walking with Calhoun and asks him, he says, you know, you really shouldn't run because what will you do when you're, when you're done and you'll be so young, you'll still have so much life ahead of you. And Calhoun says, "Well, I'll just I'll write my memoirs." And <laughs> you know, um, but yeah, he he was he was so young, and he was, uh, I think, losing that election, but particularly the way in which he loses it. And and Calhoun is one of the people who believes there is a corrupt bargain uh, between Henry Clay and John Quincy Adams. Um, that it sours him and sends him in a, in a different direction that if you wanted to be completely cynical about his uh, trajectory, his disappointed political ambitions have something to do with the fact that he embraces a more hardline states rights uh, direction after that. Although there's lots of other factors. Yeah. And, and, and as Daniel Walker, Howe once said to me in tutorial, uh, you must never forget that John Calhoun never stopped wanting to be president. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that was, and they, he was speaking about 18, like 43, I guess, 1844, uh, that election. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so even though we don't, and he was correcting me for thinking that Calhoun was just a, you know, just a Senator by that time, just wanted to write things. Um, nope. He always kind of wanted to be president. No, I, I think that, uh, I kind of, you know, I speculate in the book that in his, in his last speech, where he proposes this constitutional amendment. And then later, once it's published after his death, it's revealed that it was this idea of the dual executive. And 
it's just impossible to me that Calhoun didn't think of himself as the the, the Southern president, you know, yeah. right? <laughs> even yeah, even when he knew he was dying of tuberculosis, I think he just uh, yeah he still wanted to be president. So after eighteen twenty four, Calhoun doesn't get Pennsylvania. Essentially, right? If he got if he got in Pennsylvania, I guess New York or just Pennsylvania, he would have been president. Yeah, well, he he said he says that it it comes down to Pennsylvania. It's when he doesn't get nominated. It's when Jackson gets nominated instead of him in Pennsylvania that he knows it's he really knows it's over. And you know what do you know? Pennsylvania is still. doing that to to people today it's it's been important since 1776 yeah, so, yeah. um uh next incident uh nullification crisis where we best know him he's been a jackson man up to this point i think just for the nullification crisis uh you make a very interesting point about why he decides to stick his neck out mm-hmm. in favor of nullification so could you briefly describe that yeah well I think the um, if you view so if you view the the nullification crisis from from just the national level, the way we usually teach it in our U.S. history classes, I think, is as kind of the showdown between Calhoun as a an advocate of hardcore you know states' rights against the the tariff, um, and and Jackson as the advocate of federal uh, as the advocate of the union and federal power and all those sorts of things, and. Um, one of the things that's not frequently appreciated is that Calhoun is, uh, by this point, he sincerely believes that the tariff is, uh, is, is a kind of unconstitutional, uh, economic drain on South Carolina, right? So he sincerely believes that, but he is also trying to navigate this middle path between, uh, Andrew Jackson on the one hand nationally and and what is emerging in South Carolina, which is the uh, this this radical movement for not just for not nullification, but uh, uh, resistance to the point of secession and war, that many of his uh, political allies and and lieutenants like uh, George McDuffie are leading. They kind of break with Calhoun and are leading this, uh, this effort um, against the tariff. And McDuffie in particular gives some of these hair-raising speeches um, about South Carolinians being the, the descendants of uh, you know, revolutionary ancestors and how to be worthy of that. They have to resist the federal government to the last dying breath. And Calhoun, um, in response to that, uh, if you look at nullification through that lens, nullification, and, and you compare Calhoun's rhetoric to the rhetoric that some of these people like McDuffie were uh, were spouting, it, it it he saw it as a moderate, I mean, he portrayed it as a moderate middle path where he came up with a constitutional mechanism that would resolve this impasse. And um, I think that... Uh, I think that he was still trying to preserve his own national standing. I think that was one thing that was happening. Um, I think he did. He had absorbed the the view that was common in South Carolina of the tariff, which Calhoun was not the the originator of that view, but he fully bought into it. He was he by by the time he wrote the South Carolina Exposition, he understood that what was at the root of all this was really slavery, and so 
resisting the the tariff or coming up with a mechanism constitutionally to resist it was incredibly important, not just because of the tariff, but because of what might happen with slavery. Um, but the way that he the way that he navigates that middle ground, I think, and and, and uh, when you read some of the way uh, some of the uh, uh, the letters that the ra- that South Carolina radicals wrote about Calhoun, where they are furious with him for co-opting their movement and uh, and taming it, essentially. Um, then you start to appreciate that there's a more complicated story about the difference, the very different atmosphere that Calhoun was dealing with in South Carolina uh, versus the way we usually tell that story from a national perspective. Um, that's just, you know, it, it, it's just, uh, it's just interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, it, but it, it doesn't take away from the fact that Calhoun, that he did come up with a way to defy the national government. <laughs> yeah. Right? No, but that, but that. It, it was, it was very clear that I, I had never considered the fact before that, that Calhoun was as scared of his followers as everyone else. And that in, in a way you see this, you see this happening in, in 2021 politics, yeah. uh, people becoming radical because of pressure from below. Yeah. No. Uh, in order to, and in some ways to uh, act as, but becoming less radical as acting as a breaks upon their followers who they're afraid are really crazy. Yeah. And, and, you know, Calhoun, um, uh, the, you still, you still, I mean, Calhoun still bears responsibility for this in the sense of, you know, John Quincy Adams thought that nullification was the most dangerous doctrine ever introduced in American politics, right? It wasn't wrong. Yeah. The, this idea that states could legally and constitutionally defy the federal government. And, and you know, it would have been the end of the union as they knew it and as we know it, if Calhoun mm-hmm. had succeeded in kind of imprinting that into uh, precedent and constitutional understandings and those sorts of things. Um, he, uh, you know, Calhoun honestly did not believe that it would lead to disunion. Um, he thought he always viewed his own role as having successfully navigated this middle road. Um, and yet clearly what you're saying about him kind of co-opting the radical wing in South Carolina by moving towards it is true. He could have he could, there were plenty of unionists, influential mm-hmm. unionists in South Carolina, that if Calhoun had come out and placed his weight on that side of the scale, who knows what, what would have happened. Um, but he simply, he didn't believe that. He, he had embraced the view that the tariff was um, unconstitutional and that it was draining you know, money away from South Carolina. And once he came to those sorts of conclusions, Calhoun was just not going to rethink it. He 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 seemed to he seemed to come to conclude. Well, he even said this about himself at the beginning of the nullification crisis to a friend before he kind of comes out, so to speak, as a as a as the author of nullification. He writes to a friend and tries to explain to him what's about to happen and says, you know, I don't know why it is, but I just I I come to these conclusions uh, and when I see them clearly, I, I, I act on them, you know, and, and I just, they just happen, you know, <laughs> he just has, there is no uncertainty in the man 
at all about anything, which is one way that I just, I don't relate to Calhoun. <laughs> yeah. Right. He's uh he, yeah. And that's the, there's such a remoteness about that. Yeah. Uh, and this is, and this is kind of why he scares the crap out of anyone who reads him like yeah, that. I mean, right. there's like, there's like, he is both the rock and the hard place. Well, um, it, it's, you know, everybody knows the quote about, that Harriet Martinez says about him that he, you know, the cast iron man quote, right. Which is a fantastic quote. Well, do you have, do you have it in your head? Could you, cause well, listeners probably don't know it. Yeah. That, that, um, Martineau, who's this, you know, kind of pioneering, uh, sociologist, uh, and, and writer meets Calhoun, um, in Washington and spends a little time about him and, uh, uh with him. Right. And she says, uh, her uh, her famous quote is that he's the cast iron man who looks as if he had never been born and never could be extinguished. And uh, this is, you know, this is certainly, this is in the 1830s. So he's not even as scary looking as he <laughs> would yeah. become later. Well, I, I, you know, I mean, we, we're, we're, we're really, uh, I'm, I'm keeping you far too long, but yeah. also even in 1848, when he is that person, uh, I love this great quote, which I never seen from Oliver Dyer, who sees him in the Senate and, and he wrote, he seemed to be a perfect image and embodiment of the devil. Yeah. Had I come across his likeness in a copy of Milton's Paradise Lost, I should have at once accepted as a masterpiece of some great artist who had a peculiar genius for satanic portraiture. Yeah. He was tall and gaunt, and there seemed to be an inner complexion of a dark soul shining out through the skin of his face. His eyes were large, black, piercing, scintillant. Yeah, everyone mentions the eyes. Yeah. Just as we do when we see his photograph. Mm -hmm. His hair was iron gray and rising straight from the scalp, fell over on all sides and hung down in thick masses like a lion's mane. Hmm. His features were strongly marked and their expression were firm, stern, aggressive, and threatening. And yet, I, then he's taken aback by the clearness of his views, by the bell-like sweetness and resonance of his voice, the elegance of his diction, and the exquisite courtesy of demeanor, and eventually comes to say he, that he so wished we could have him talking on our side. Yeah, it, it's that was just one of many instances that I found uh, where people compared Calhoun to the figure of Satan in Milton. Yeah. And I think this is key to understanding how people viewed him and maybe how we should view him, uh, which is that uh, he's somebody who is so intelligent and is able to make arguments that are so compelling that just like the figure of Satan in Milton, it almost it almost calls reason itself into question. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and and that's what I think. Yeah, that's what Dyer is expressing there. Yeah, uh, let's briefly before as we wrap up, I, I, you of course more than anyone have sort of teased out the um, relationships between um, Calhoun and the people he kept in bondage, the people he enslaved. Yeah, um, and you there are cer certain little incidents of their life which you then un you demonstrate uh how they affected his life could you could you talk about one of them i'm thinking perhaps the time that that it seems that issy who's yeah. the uh maybe accidentally on purpose left a hot coal beneath a pillow to set on fire mm -hmm. and, sort of, and what that shows about calhoun in his the self-image or the actuality of his patriarchal philosophy 
because yeah. because this gets into relationships between the people that he 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 enslaves but also the the children who in some sense some of whom feel enslaved to him yeah um so issy is the daughter of uh old sawney and old sawney's father adam had been enslaved to calhoun's father and so what your issy is 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 the third generation of a family that had been enslaved to calhoun's family um and in in the middle of calhoun's uh presidential run uh, for the 1844 election, uh, there's this episode that the family try, uh, the family tries to keep it very quiet because they realize that I think the, the explosive implications of this uh, for somebody who had made the arguments about slavery as a positive good that Calhoun had made. So in public, right, Calhoun by this point had made arguments that Slavery is a positive good, that plantations are little communities that where the interests of the you know, slaves and masters are unified in the person of the master. And one night, uh, Issy puts a live coal in the pillow of one of Calhoun's sons, Patrick, um, or I'm sorry, William Lowndes, one of his younger sons. Um, and... Uh, the they only catch the you know the smell of smoke alerts people that there's a fire they put it out. Issy confesses that she that she did it, but she claims she was going to go back and take it out because she had second thoughts. And there's all sorts of interesting uh, stuff going on there. Um, and and this is only one episode. I mean, I talk about uh, several other ones in the book where the enslaved people who, if Calhoun's theory of slavery were right, these would be the people who were most loyal, mm -hmm. most, uh, you know, uh, had the most affection for the family. And she's actually trying to burn the house down. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it's just such an amazing contradiction that I think what you're seeing there is uh, not only an act of resistance by Issy, but the incredible rationalization, it, the incredible um, effort to ignore evidence in his own life that that somebody like Calhoun had to uh, make to to make the arguments that he did. Um, and you know, we're all good at self deception. Human beings are are just fantastic at doing that. And I think Calhoun was uh, kind of an Olympic athlete. Yeah, well, he's not the only one. Yeah, I mean, yeah. No, uh, no. Read, read, as any, anyone listening, I'll, I'll put this in the show notes. Read Gertrude uh, Thomas's diary from late April 1865 or uh, May. As everyone's leaving, all the people that she has enslaved to that point are leaving, and she just she's really approaching a psych a psychotic break. Yeah. Um, and and Mary Chestnut as well. I mean, they just can't imagine that these people would actually leave them. Well, why would they want to do this? And that, that happens at Fort Hill as well. We have an, yeah. a, a diary yeah. entry by one of Calhoun's uh, granddaughters. You know, he's dead. He's been dead for 15 years. Who who says, you know, all, all the all the slaves have left, you know, in 1865, which is a, you know, that's as good a, a verdict on Calhoun's vision of slavery as anything else. Mm -hmm. Um. Calhoun, Calhoun died of tuberculosis, which I don't think I realized. When did he, when did he contract that? Uh, yeah. So I think this is something that, that I, 
uh, you know, people knew, I think that he died of tuberculosis, although they may have called it different things. You know, they called it consumption and mm -hmm. some people would call it pneumonia. Um, I was, I had, I was fortunate enough that I was, I was doing my own kind of archive of these, uh, his collected works as I went along by taking pictures in Evernote and then being able to search for, search them. Oh, excellent. Thank you for sharing your research, hot research tip. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, Pro tip. for the. And so I, I went back and started searching for words like cough and uh, things like this. And I discovered that um, the family started talking uh, about one of uh, Calhoun's sons, um, uh, John, um, that he had a cough. Um, and they, they, they started talking about this um, in 1844. And Calhoun caught it you know, somewhere around then, but, uh, there's, there's a report in, uh, newspapers in DC in January of 1845 that, that say he had a serious bout with pneumonia that I think is really the, the most severe onset of this. And, you know, the thing about tuberculosis is people could, could carry it for years and basically live with it. Um, until until finally it reached end stage and killed him. So that the famous picture, the Matthew Brady picture of him, where he looks sort of like a skeleton, mm -hmm. uh, a few months before he died. Well, that's that is somebody with end stage tuberculosis. Um, yeah, and and I think that image, um, you know, gives gives you also uh, has has also influenced our how we see Calhoun as much as anything that any historian has ever written. Yeah, the the picture on your on the, the the portrait on the cover of your book is a is a very different image of him. Right. Yeah. Um, but uh, the eyes are still the same. Yeah. No. Everybody commented on the eyes. Uh, one one British writer, Sarah Mari, said, "I think they give off light in the dark," which is <laughs> kind of a frightening. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, he um, we already so we've discussed his death, his illness. Um, I'll have links to some of his uh, later writings. Uh, they are the, the the big ones are published posthumously. So in a weird way, uh, those of us who grew up reading Hollinger and Capper's uh, American Intellectual History in two volumes, uh, sort of primary writings, we were reading Dead Calhoun. Yep. Um, and that's one of the interesting things to read a biography of Calhoun is, and as I keep on saying, to realize that his humanity rather than just his his mentality. Mm -hmm. Um. When you started writing this book, um, I can remember talking about it with you like four years ago, five years ago. Yeah. Um, and you were wondering how to apply some of the ideas in the history of capitalism mm -hmm. uh, that we found that was been seen Ed Baptist, um, that Walter Johnson, and so on, Sven to Beckert, yeah. Sven Beckert, um, you know, which. You know, we're, you and I are history of capitalism curious. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've changed. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm still mostly curious. Um, I'm, I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop at some point. I don't want to drop it myself. But, yeah. um, you know, how did that change the way you wrote your book? Um, and, and then also the question I always enjoy asking is, did you change any conceptions uh, that you had from the beginning to the end of the book? Boy, yeah, those are great. Um, 
Yeah, I, I, one of the things that I wanted to do in this book was to, in some ways, a lot of my work was done for me by all of these historians who are, you know, Michael O'Brien redoing intellectual history, the history of capitalism, people like Matt Carp writing about foreign policy and slaveholding. Um, and my job was kind of just to fit Calhoun into a lot of these, a lot of this scholarship where I, where I thought he did fit anyway. Um, so I think the big difference between how I interpret Calhoun through the lens of this new scholarship and, and how some older historians interpreted him was that Calhoun used to be the stand-in, I think, for the kind of Genovese interpretation of the South as uh, opposed to modernity, opposed to capitalism, and his arguments for slavery and his critiques of Northern capitalism uh, fit into that. You know, that, that was how he was viewed. Sure. That I mean, and that's that's what we get from Hofstadter too. I mean, right. the marks of the masterclass. So. Exactly. This uh, is this this is what young stylist Gene Genovese found cool about yeah. you know. And and I think uh, where I would take it in a different direction, relying on the new history of capitalism, is that uh, Calhoun's arguments about slavery and this and uh, the economy of slavery were. Um, not that it was opposed to capitalism, but that, and not that it was capitalism, but that as a part of the global capitalist system, as a part of the empire of cotton, slavery was an indispensable part of the system. And so, you know, I guess I would be one of those historians who see slavery as not fundamentally capitalist in its, in its nature, but it is part of a larger uh, global capitalist system. And, th and there are certainly parts of it that, that are very market driven. Um, and and uh, Cal Calhoun's argument to, um, to the British, to the French, to the North is, uh, is essentially, um, you know, we are part of this global system and if you will just leave us alone, we're all going to get rich together. <laughs> um, and so I do think there's a, he sees, he sees slavery as a, as a solution to the fundamental problem of, uh, of capitalism, which is the, you know, what Marx describes the, the conflict between the interests of labor and capitalism. And for Calhoun, slavery solves that problem. And so it, it is fundamentally suited to the modern world because of the uh, of what modern science was proving, he believed, which was the 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 supposed inferiority of black people. Mm -hmm. So what did you change your mind about? Oh, my goodness. Well, I changed my mind a lot more than uh, Calhoun ever did. Well, um, that's 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 stipulated. Yeah, um, that would, I mean, no one no one has ever now. I I think um, I think one thing that I uh, changed my mind about, and I, I will be very interested to see how this part of the book is received, is that um, I think I saw Calhoun as fundamentally part of a, a kind of anti democratic. Um, reaction in American politics. Um, that at first he's part of, of that in terms of, you know, he's a Jeffersonian and Jacksonian and, um, 
and then he kind of rejects it and is arguing for slavery. And he's from a state, South Carolina, that is supposedly one of the most anti-democratic states. You know, they don't elect, they don't allow popular election of uh, anybody above the state legislature. And uh, I think in terms of our modern definitions of democracy, that's completely true. Uh, but I think what I didn't realize is how deeply Calhoun, differently than other pro-slavery figures like James Henry Hammond, how deeply Calhoun believed he was committed to Jeffersonian small d democracy all the way to the end of his life. And he's committed to a version of it that we, you know, I, I'd call it illiberal democracy, right? Mm -hmm. uh, equality for white people based on inequality for black people. Um, but there's nothing, uh, I don't think there's any, you know, we, we think of democracy as a kind of magic word today. Um, but we know that these sorts of illiberal, I mean, a democracy has, has have existed in history and there's no reason to think that we don't have to do the work to define what democracy is and who participates in it and all, and all those sorts of things. And Calhoun was just advocating for a version of democracy that, um, you know, that, that we find reprehensible, but that he saw as fully in the line of, you know, Jefferson, Jackson, and those sorts of things, which of course it was in the sense that those people all believed in slavery. Um, but, but I didn't appreciate how much to the very end of his life, he himself saw himself as a, as a kind of Jeffersonian Democrat. My guest today for what is now the, I think officially the longest episode of Historically Thinking has been Bob Elder. He's the author of Calhoun, American Heretic. Bob, thanks so much for being part of Historically Thinking, uh, for such a, a, a lengthy conversation and for the second time. Thanks so much for having me, Al. This was, this was fun. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runnett. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.